A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain, since you have become too lazy to understand. Although this, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation. Again, you need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain and that often falls on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and at the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrate for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good to see you. And uh, I do invite you to turn to Hebrews 5 and 6, which is on page 12 of your programs, or you can find it in your Bibles. Hebrews 5, verse 11 through 6, verse 12. One of our favorite family movies is Miracle. Have you ever seen the Disney movie Miracle? It tells the story of the 1980 U.S. men's hockey team who faced off as huge underdogs against the Russians for, for the gold medal. And one of the most fascinating parts of the movie is the coaching style of Herb Brooks. Um, in the movie, as well as in real life, Herb Brooks was famously hard on his players. He, he pushed them all the way to the edge of their abilities, not to hurt them, but to draw the greatness out of them. He looked for players who had greatness within them, and then he did everything he could to draw out that greatness. 
Now, sometimes this would take the form of super blunt, you know, feedback. He would say, you're playing worse every day. And right now you're playing like it's next month. Um, other times it would take the form of the grueling workouts. And one of his most, you know, memorable phrases is the legs feed the wolf, boys, the legs feed the wolf. And he would say that as they skated back and forth on the ice, sometimes until um, they lost their lunch, because he knew that physical strength and conditioning feeds their ability to win. So he didn't go easy on them at all, but he sure did believe in them. Looking back on uh, their victory over the Russians, here's what Herb had to say about this particular Olympic team. He says, they came from all different walks of life, many having competed against one another, but they came together and grew to be a really close team. I pushed this team really hard. I mean, I really pushed them. But they had the ability to answer the bell. We were a fast, creative team that played extremely disciplined and had a great resiliency. They just kept on moving and working and digging and came from behind six or seven times that year to win. Now, one of the things I appreciate most about the pastor who, who wrote and probably also preached the book of Hebrews is how much he believed in those early followers of Jesus reading his letter for the first time. He did not patronize them with low expectations, right? He drew out their faithfulness so that they could finish their race well. And, and in today's portion of the, of the sermon, of the letter that he wrote, this pastor is going to address something that, that they faced and that, that we will face at some point, which is the point where we get spiritually stuck We're following Jesus and something in us gets stuck. He noticed a disturbing pattern among these Christians is that a lot of them were taking in all these spiritual inputs and they wanted more and more spiritual inputs, but they weren't taking any spiritual initiative at all. They were soaking up all the goodies of the gospel, but they weren't actually growing in the gospel. They weren't bearing any fruit in the gospel. And they were just stuck in a rut. And there was a rut of excuses and complacency. And uh, and if things didn't change, they were truly in spiritual danger. And this is why he wrote this portion of the letter, because he cared too much to let them stay stuck and to let them slide into spiritual danger. So like any good coach, the pastor of Hebrews is sparking action and galvanizing them so as to bring out their faithfulness, to bring out their very best. And the thing is that every generation of people who want to follow Jesus or who are following Jesus need uh, this motivation. And so as it takes the form in today's text, we're going to find three things, a reality check, a warning, and an encouragement. A reality check, a warning, and an encouragement. I pray the Holy Spirit applies this to all of us, each individually and us as a whole, in just the way that we need it. Let's look first at the reality check. Have you ever looked at a map and seen these three words? You are here. You ever seen one of those maps? Maybe you're at the airport, you're in Terminal 1. You are here, but you needed to be in Terminal 3. Or maybe you're hiking and you're like, I should be three miles up the river, but I'm, you are here. I'm actually three miles behind here. 
and I need to catch up somehow. Or maybe, you know, you're at a shopping center. You're like, wow, I, w- I meant to be in zone one. I'm in zone five. You are here. It's a painful reality check sometimes, but very helpful because it clarifies where you actually are versus where you intended to be. Let's listen to the pastor as he points out that little red dot, that you are here point for his spiritually stuck congregation. Verse uh, 11 of chapter 5, he begins by saying, we have a great deal to say about this, meaning how Christ is the true and better Melchizedek, but it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Uh, Other translations say slow in hearing. You know, you're, you're not listening. Verse 12, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Verse 13, now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. The pastor is saying, I want to tell you about how Jesus is your eternal high priest, but, but you've become too complacent to track with me. You've become slow in hearing. You've been drifting in your attention. And so he goes on, by this time, you should be teachers imparting the truths that you've been taking in for years. You should be passing on all of the spiritual richness that you've been receiving. But you want to stay on the passive end, the receiving end, and that's what infants do. Look at the map with me. You are here, right? You should be here by now. With the time that you've had, with the inputs you've had, you're here, but you should be here. It's a painful reality check. Can you see, he says, your own immaturity? Can you see that you've become a perpetual spiritual receiver without maturing into a contributor? He says in verse 14, solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Now, when parents uh, or when kids are young, they need parents to monitor their food. Parents need to purchase the food, prepare the food, and then sometimes determine whether the food is good for ingesting or bad for ingesting. One parent hands the package of ham to the other parent and says, smell this. Is this okay? And they're like, yeah, that's, that's what ham should smell like. Smell this milk. And it's like, no, there's chunks in the milk. And it's sour. Don't, don't feed that to the child. Now, at some point, the child should be old enough to do that for themselves. They should, be, they should have their own sniff test for their own food before they start taking in the food because their senses have been trained to distinguish between good and bad. If the food smells good and is nutritious, they say yes to it. If the food smells rancid and tastes sour, they say no to it. Now, how does this relate to our spiritual lives? Growing up spiritually means that we take responsibility for what we're ingesting into our minds and hearts. We're no longer just passively just taking in whatever we want, whatever we receive. We learn to distinguish between good and evil, which is harder than it sounds. For instance, what's the difference between being discerning and being judgy? What's the difference between being polite and being a coward? 
What's the difference between a friend that you are spiritually influencing for the good and a friend who is actually influencing you for evil and you don't even know it? What's the difference between an ideology and a conviction? What's the difference between the good and the evil? Does it pass the sniff test? Do you even have a sniff test? Spiritual adults learn to distinguish between good and evil. Spiritual adults train their wills to choose the good over the evil. Spiritual adults develop the courage to overcome evil with good. And that is that means suffering and responsibility and, and struggle. And you know what's easier? Passive mode. Whatever I get is what I take in. Whatever I feel like is what I take in. Someone else should make the hard decisions for me. Someone else should do the initiating. I'll respond if I feel like it. These early Christians were in passive mode, but it was so subtle. You know why? Because they loved themselves a good theology talk. Oh, they loved their theology. And they went round and round the lake of theology, the same old lake, same old, same old topics. Play the hits, you know? Getting saved. Getting baptized, how's that different from Jewish rites of initiation? What's going to happen after we die? The same old thing. And at one time, that was a good thing to learn, right? These are great things to learn, but they were going in circles. They weren't getting anywhere. And so um, they weren't going deeper. They weren't moving forward. If we think about this from another angle, um, let's talk about what it's like to, to... to get engaged and get married. Sometimes I'll meet with engaged couples when they're preparing for marriage. And I'll ask them a question. And if, if I happen to meet with you at some point, now you know what I'm going to do, is I'll ask them, hey, tell me about your spouse. Um, tell me about their story, their childhood. What brought them here? What were formative moments in their life? And why do you want to marry them? And I'll hear about um, I'll hear about all the things that they love about their spouse and I'll, I'll hear about the childhood. I'll, I'll hear about those quirks and how they met and the hope and the joy that they have for their relationship and get the sense that this relationship is moving somewhere, right? Now let's imagine that I met with the same couple five years into their marriage and I asked them the same question. All right, now tell me about your spouse, right? Given everything that you've been through, given everything that you've suffered, given every, given every uh, thing that you've experienced together, Now tell me, if I got the same warmed over answer that I got five years before, uh, you know, it's like, have you, are you growing in your relationship? Are you invested in this at all? Haven't you learned something from the last five years? Or did you check out at some point? I'm giving them a reality check. You're stuck. You should be here, but you're over here. There's a maturity gap. You haven't been growing together. You're in a relational decline. And relationships are either growing or they're dying. The pastor of Hebrews says, you should be a mature, courageous teacher by now. Instead, you become passive. Now let's pause for a moment. There's some here. Maybe you've taken offense to this reality check approach. 
And, and you're hearing this pastor call his congregation infants, and you're wondering, is this a shame-based tactic, and isn't that mean and demeaning and harmful? It's a good question to ask. In her book, Dare to Lead, author Brene Brown makes a bold claim, quote, clear is kind, unclear is unkind. Feeding people half-truths to make them feel better, which is almost always about making ourselves feel more comfortable, is unkind. What is she saying? There's a difference, isn't there, between clear and honest feedback intended to build someone up and insults that tear them down. And given the context and the tone of Hebrews as a whole, I would appeal to you that these words about spiritual infancy, friends, are loving, clear feedback intended to build up. Where might you be on this map? Where might I be on this map? You are here, and we should be here. Where's here? Here's one way to find out. We can ask the Lord this question. What childish or wounded part of me keeps me from maturity in Jesus? What childish or wounded part of me keeps me stuck? Is it love of comfort? Is it stubborn pride? Is it love of controversy? Is it passivity? Is it entitlement? Is it fears that I allow to dominate me? Now, our coach, the author of Hebrews, and our Lord would have us face these things, confront these things, not to shame us, but to call us to something better and to something higher a reality check. The second thing the author of Hebrews gives them and us is a warning. And this is the future as it could be. Now we're about to wade in some deep waters, my friends, and I'm going to read these verses and we're going to consider their implications together. All right, Hebrews 6 verses 4 and following. Let's, let's look at them together. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, and who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. So, let's ask some questions about these words. Are these verses contradicting the promises of eternal security which we find in places like Romans 5 through 8. In other parts of Scripture, we see that when God saves us, when he makes us his own children, he keeps that promise until the end. He will complete the work that he started. He will fulfill his promises. It's objectively true. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't have to live in fear about losing our salvation. Uh, and just to pause and say, if you're hearing these words from Hebrews 6, and you're worried that these might be true of you, they're not, okay? Because if you're anxious about it, that means that at some point you care. You care enough to be concerned. The phrase, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened and who have fallen away, who recrucify the Son of God, that's a really difficult line of scriptural text. And when we encounter scriptures like this, we don't pretend it's not there. 
we don't we don't shove it aside. We investigate it. We let it spark thoughtful questions. Uh, we consider it, and and it this process actually helps us grow in our understanding of God's word. Here's one principle that helps us interpret scripture, and that is that we look at other parts of scripture and we see it as a whole. For instance, let's consider the story of the Apostle Peter. We got Actually, we got a little snippet of his story in the gospel reading, which Deacon Susan read. Now, Peter was once enlightened, right? He was one of the first people to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He got it about who Jesus was, and he followed Jesus. And then what happened? That guy fell away. And not only that, he held the son of God to open contempt as Jesus is arrested, he says, I swear, I don't know the man. What happened then? Well, Jesus restored him to repentance, didn't he? He, he said, uh, you know, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? He actually took him to the depths of his sin, helped him see it, and then applied his love right to that part that had really messed up. I mean, it's just such a beautiful gospel moment. We all need it. Here's your sin, it's really bad, and I love you so much, and you are fully restored. And here's what Peter would later write as a much older man. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter knew something firsthand about our Lord. He loves to restore people to himself. Jesus would have one of those beach conversations with every single person who would come to him by faith. So what's the pastor in Hebrews warning us about? I believe it's this. We could soak up the grace of God without any response of faith. We could passively take in all the spiritual inputs without taking any spiritual initiative at all. We could be enlightened. We could see the goodness of God, and have our eyes open to it. We could even taste and sample the gifts of heaven and the word of God and be like, yeah, that tastes good. We could share in the Holy Spirit. And somehow, down the road, if we never respond with obedience of faith, and that's our response, it's a faithful, obedient yes to God, we could end up holding the Son of God to contempt. We could find ourselves, we don't think it now, but we could find ourselves holding the Son of God to open contempt, mocking him, scorning him, scorning the gospel, rather than thanking him on our knees for what he's done for us. Now, how does this happen? How could that ever happen? Let's go back to the engaged couple who didn't grow closer at all in five years. Now, this is a totally fictional example, okay? Let's say I met with them again in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. I asked them the same question. What do you love and know about your spouse? Tell me about them. I got that same warmed over answer I got when they were engaged, except this time it was laced with cynicism and contempt and bitterness and barbs and accusations. I would look at them in the eye and say, this relationship is on life support. And if you don't do something now, it's going to die. 
the pastor of Hebrews is not going for a theological debate here, okay? That's the last thing he wants to do. The author of Hebrews is challenging us out of our complacency into obedience. He's calling out those who are like in the community of grace, but they haven't yet responded in faith. Listen, here's what faith is not. Faith is not just checking the box. Sure, I believe in God. Sure, I believe the gospel. Faith is active obedience, active repentance, actively moving towards God's invitation. Faith says, Lord, you're actually in charge, not just in theory, but I'm actually going to do what you say. I'm actually going to say yes to you. I don't want to just taste your goodness. I want to feast on your goodness to make it my delight. I want to grow. Challenge me. Faith says, Lord, I, I trust you not only with my, with my sins to forgive them. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my money. I'm going to part with my money in your name. I trust you, Lord, with my desire for community, and I'm going to pursue it in your church. I let my suffering draw me closer to you rather than embitter me towards you. Spiritual inputs to us without spiritual initiative from us over time is a very dangerous equation. And if we insist on receiving from God without responding to him, we might find ourselves one day completely hardened to him and outside the walls of his heavenly city. That's the future as it could be. But the pastor of Hebrews sees a different future, one that by God's grace will be. And this is an encouragement for every single person hearing these words and breathing the air of this auditorium or hearing this sermon some other place at some other time, an encouragement of the future as it will be by God's grace for you and for me. Verse nine of Hebrews six, even though we are speaking this way, Dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to, to salvation. Okay, now here's a pat on the back from the coach. Okay, he's like, hey, this isn't who you are. That's where you could be, but that's not who you are. That's not your future. I see a better future. I'm confident of it. Why? Because we're going to try really hard? No, because of God's character. God's character. We're responding to God's character. Verse 10, God is not unjust. That's the basis of what he just says. We're confident of better things. Why? For God is not unjust. That's the foundation of us following him. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Friends, hear me. God is not unjust. He is good. He's loving, he's holy, and he has an exceptional and gracious memory. And he appreciates all of the little responses of faith that we think are insignificant or that we've forgotten about. He sees your work. He sees how you have loved in his name. He sees you demonstrating that love by serving the saints. He sees you encouraging, forgiving, showing hospitality, visiting people in prison. He, he sees everything. Okay, so imagine a conversation between you and the Lord Jesus. There's a chair here and there's a chair here. He invites you to sit down. 
and you're face to face with him. And he's like, I would love to have a conversation with you, just you. And you gulp, what's this going to be about? And he says, ever since I made you my own, I made you my child. Um, I've been putting people in your life for the sole purpose that, that you could love them on my behalf. And I've been putting things into your hand that you could give to them. Maybe it was an encouragement. It was an act of mercy. It was a ride to work. It was a financial help. It was career coaching. It was mentoring someone younger. It was a word of scripture. It was staying up late so you could have a conversation with them. It was an open door. It was extra love, and no one else saw it, but I saw it. I saw you speak that word of scripture. I saw you show that act of courage. I've watched you give those gifts, and it has meant so much to me. So I want to tell you about every single gift I've watched you give. And I want to tell you about how much it meant, and I want to tell you about the impact that it had. I want you to see the full impact of it. And so for hours, he explains these things to you, and he brings things up that you've never even thought about since they happened. You've forgotten completely. But you leave with such a full heart and such a sense of God's witness with you and such a sense of his, his holiness and such a sense of his love And after that conversation, how much more would you want to keep going? How much more would you want to keep giving? How much more would you want to give that response of faith? So after that conversation, you know, complacency would would feel so much less attractive, wouldn't it? How much more watchful and ready would would we be to be active in our faith and our response? He ends uh, this section with verses 11 and 12. Now, we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of the hope until the end. Verse 12, so that you won't become lazy, but will become imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Friends, here's a great way, I think, for us to end, is for all of us who are tempted to stay stuck here and complacent, actually for us to take the next step, not on our own, but through imitation. Some of you are familiar with the great debates about who the goat is. And sometimes it's a debate between Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. But I want to say, forget about that debate, because Kobe Bryant, his whole life, ever since he knew about basketball, was trying to imitate Michael Jordan. He was trying to become Michael Jordan. So as he was growing up, he wrote book reports about Michael Jordan. He, he did. He watched Michael Jordan play basketball, and he tried to imitate his style, um, his methods, his, his approach to the game. And then once he arrived in the NBA, he actually sought out Jordan to get more coaching from him. They spent a lot of time together. They became friends, and he continued to, to try to imitate Michael Jordan. After Kobe's tragic death, here's what one of his teammates said. Quote, everything that MJ did, Kobe did, like chewing the gum, the walking, the moves, the footworks. I used to have VHS tapes back in the day full of highlights of Michael Jordan. Kobe asked to borrow them, and I've never seen those tapes again. Who are we looking up to to imitate in our walk with Christ? 
if everyone in our life and friend group is spiritually stuck, we'll probably stay spiritually stuck too, right? So we look for people to imitate. Who is running after the promises as if they will inherit the promises? Who is persevering in suffering? Who is pursuing growth in Christ, mind, soul, mission, maturity? Maybe they're in your city group. Maybe they're in history like people in Hebrews 11. Maybe they're in our midst somewhere. Maybe they're a a Christian in a different city. Pursue them, my friends. Watch them. Imitate them. Imitators become inheritors. Imitators become inheritors. Who are you imitating? Who are you following? You are here, but we're not meant to stay there, right? We're not meant to stay there. Otherwise, there would be no Hebrews 5 and 6, but there is because God is calling us here. He's confident. The Lord is confident of better things for you and me. Maturity, victories, fruitfulness. So by his grace, my dear brothers and sisters, Let's rise out of complacency and follow him into his heavenly city where we will inherit every single promise by the grace of Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.